ask how many of you looked at Luke chapter 2 together as a family yesterday. But I have a feeling many of you did. I have a feeling many of you went to Luke chapter 2 at some point yesterday, especially if you have children in the home, and you read through at least a portion of Luke chapter 2. We think of it as kind of the primary passage, and for good reason, one of the primary passages about the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, I must confess that at the McMorris family, we used to, before we opened gifts, read from Luke chapter 2 together as a family. And several years ago, several years ago, I realized no one is paying attention whatsoever to the fact that we are reading Luke chapter 2 together as a family. And so we started actually opening our gifts first, and then later, after the excitement of the gifts had kind of calmed down just a little bit, then we would open our Bibles and look at Luke chapter 2 together. I'm not sure that my children pay much more attention, but it sure seems like they do after the gifts have been opened. It seems like they do a little bit better job paying attention to Luke chapter 2, except I think one of them fell asleep while we were reading Luke chapter 2 together. We're a mess. The McMorris family, the McMorris family is a mess, um, even on Christmas Day. Luke chapter 2, but I'm not going to read verses that you think I'm going to read to you. In Luke chapter 2, we, this morning, are going to read verses 21 through 24. Starting in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification... According to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Why on earth? This morning, are we talking about these religious observations that Mary and Joseph observed when baby Jesus was still just a few days old? I mean, why are we reading these verses and so what about these verses? These aren't the important verses in Luke chapter 2, or, or are they? When we ask the question, why did Jesus come to earth? Most of us give a very similar answer. I think most Christians, if you were to ask most Christians, why did Jesus come to earth? They would give you a very good answer. They would give you the answer that Jesus came to earth to die for my sins. Is that true that Jesus came to earth to die for our sins? I don't mean for that to be a trick question. That is, that is absolutely true. That, that is one of the reasons that Jesus was born as a baby and came to this earth, was to die for our sins. That's a true answer, but that's an incomplete answer. If the only reason Jesus came to earth was to die for my sins, then was there any point in the 33 years of his life 
lived from the time he was born until the time he hung on the cross. Do we kind of celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christmas time, the first Noel? Oh, come, let us adore him. All the songs that we sing. Do we celebrate Christmas and then kind of wait around for 33 years before the important thing that he came to do really happened? Or do we see right away in verse 21 of Luke chapter 2, do we see immediately Jesus rescuing us? I'm going to argue this morning. I'm not going to argue. The scripture is going to make very clear this morning that immediately upon Jesus' first breath on earth, he begins saving you. He begins saving you immediately. We're actually going to talk about my favorite thing to talk about. In all of the Bible, my favorite thing to talk about, at least at this point, today, right? Every week I'm excited most to talk about whatever it is we're talking about that Sunday. Here's my main point this morning. Jay, I don't know if we have anything. Oh, we do. Fantastic. My main point this morning is this. Jesus does everything to save you. Jesus does everything to save you. And what I want us this morning together to do is to understand more clearly what that everything, what's in the word everything? How many of you, well, let me, let me pray one more time. Father, as we look into your word now, help us understand very clearly the significance of how Jesus saves us. We pray in his name, amen. How many of you got a gift yesterday, and on the outside of the gift, on the outside of the box, it said, some assembly required? Anybody get a gift? Okay, okay. at least one. Anybody else? Will, was your hand? No? Okay. How many of you have received a gift like that before at some point? Okay, or maybe what's even worse, you purchase for your children a gift that says, some assembly required, and of course you think, well, then that means that like at 10 p.m. on Christmas Eve, I can start putting that thing together, only to find out that you have to have a PhD in astrophysics and engineering in order to put this thing together. And of course, you start without the instructions, right? You start, of course, I can do this. And then you begin doing it and you realize, and you realize that this gift is, is it, while it may end up being a gift to your children, no longer feels like a gift to you anyway, right? Like, I mean, there's, there is so much work involved. There's no, I mean, this thing that was meant to be a token of your love and appreciation is now just a token of your frustration and anger. And when you give it to your kids, it's kind of like a good riddance. I'm glad I don't ever have to, I don't want to ever lay hands on that again. Or you get a gift and you didn't realize it needed batteries, right? And, and so like you get this thing and it's not what you hoped it would be. There's a lot of work left for you to do. When Jesus brings us the gift of salvation, brothers and sisters. There's no assembly required. There's no batteries needed. When he brings us this gift, it is a gift that is absolutely perfect and complete in every way. In Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, we see an important word that's repeated three times here in these verses. Verse 21, let me read these verses again. Let me, let me see if you can pick up. I want to see if you can pick up yeah, it, my phone's dead. Um, this was what happens when 
the person who normally does the live stream isn't here. I, he told me he wasn't going to be here, but I, I thought I was ready with my thing. In uh, verses 21 through 24, follow along with me and see if you can find the verse. The, the, there's, there's a word that's repeated three times that I think is important. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called, he was called Jesus. And the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, I'm going to emphasize the word. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. All right, maybe you picked up on it. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to help us understand what Jesus is doing in this passage and many other passages in the scripture. And I'm just going to have two points um, for us to consider this morning. They aren't, this is not expositional the way I would normally preach a passage like this. These are two points that help us understand this passage and many other passages, I think, more clearly. First of all is this, we break God's law. You and I break God's law. And I know if you've come to church here or if you've lived more than five years on this planet, you understand that you're a lawbreaker. A quick read through the 10 words, the 10 instructions that God gave to Israel through Moses in Exodus chapter 20, which we've spent a lot of time in recently, shows us how far short we fall. Romans chapter 3 verse 9 tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul's being really clear here. Verse 23 of that same chapter says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The laws, the commands, the instructions, the precepts, all of those things, all of those things uh, we have fallen short of and, and broken. God said that unless, unless you're perfect at keeping my law, you won't enter into heaven. There's, there's a penalty for our sin. There's a penalty that must be paid for our sin. Imagine, I, I, I'm trying to, I try to think of a helpful illustration for us to understand the significance of our problem. Im, imagine if your righteousness, your holiness could be illustrated in terms of a dollar amount. And everyone floating above our heads this morning was some dollar amount that represented your righteousness. And, and God says you have to have one trillion dollars to get into heaven. Now, as of the incredibly comprehensive and scientific research that I did this morning by Googling on the web... At the moment, it appears that Elon Musk is the richest man in the world. I think he and Bezos trade places back and forth. But the, the Forbes website that I looked at this morning has Elon Musk besting uh, Bezos pretty significantly. Musk has $274 billion, or is worth $274 billion, right? We can't begin to imagine how 
I don't think he can even begin to imagine how you represent that level of net worth. Um, and yet, so, uh, so Musk is $274 billion, and God says in order to get into heaven, you've got to have about four times what the wealthiest man on the planet has to have to get into heaven. Now, if you and I were told that, immediately we go, man, that's really bad news. Because I can start working as hard as I can. I can start robbing banks as aggressively as I know how to rob. I can beg, borrow, and steal. I'm not going to come close, not even remotely close. One trillion dollars is how I pay for my ticket to get into heaven. I'm not using the number one trillion to show you, oh, you know, if you worked at it hard enough, you'd probably get there. I'm using the number one trillion to show you, impossible, never going to happen. So Jesus says you have to get there, and yet each of us have this dollar amount, like I said, that represents our current righteousness. The only problem is that you and I don't have a positive one trillion righteousness units. You and I have been living each day of our lives falling short of God's law. And so at the moment, you should be aware that not only do you not have a positive number in black with a plus sign in the front of it that says $1 trillion, but you rather have a number with a negative with a minus sign in front of it in red that says minus $1 trillion. Minus $1 trillion. You have been living each day falling short of God's law, and it's a debt that you can never repay. And every day, even in your trying to live better, you only add to the debt. You continue to add to the debt. Sounds like other nations that have a significant debt. Each day we go, we're only adding to the debt. And when we, when we think about the significance of this, this is, this is actually really bad news, isn't it? This is bad news for us. I, um, I'm looking at a copy of my notes that uh, are not updated, and I keep wondering, why, why isn't what I wrote in this sermon in front of me? And it's, be <laughs> it's because I don't have the uh, latest. Jay, can you run me that copy of the, my notes that I gave to you for the PowerPoint up to me, please? Th this is good. Um, you're watching me uh, understand this real time in the moment. I really was. I'm like looking at my notes going, man, I had a better sermon than this written. I really did. And oh, yes, thank you, Lord. Okay, good. I, I don't know how that happened, but um, I'm, I'm glad to have these notes in front of you this morning. Let me back up just a little bit um, and, and try to preach to you the sermon that I wrote for this morning. When I talked about how there is none righteous and how we all fall short of the glory of God, let me ask you to put, put a little flesh and bones on that for a second. How was yesterday? Were you impatient at any point yesterday? Were you irritable at any point yesterday? Or covetous? or materialistic, or lustful, or drunk, 
or gluttonous or fearful or self-pitying. See, we don't, we don't keep God's law very well on the very best and easiest day of the calendar year for us to do it. I mean, it's Jesus' birthday, and we've got the day off, and everything is perfect. And we look back on yesterday, and if you're like me, I can tell you, I can name for you times yesterday that I was sinful on the best day of the year. And there's a penalty for that sin. There's payment that must be paid. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus says to those workers of lawlessness in Luke chapter 7, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And God has said, unless you're perfect, unless you keep the law of God, you won't enter into heaven. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter into heaven. So imagine now, now with some of these thoughts in our minds, that trillion dollar ticket that you need to get into heaven and the trillion dollar debt that you have as you approach God, this is really bad news. All the commands, all the precepts, all the laws, all the instructions, we fail to keep every single one of them. And the payment is eternal separation from God. And this is really bad news, which makes the good news really good. In fact, the bad news is so bad that when Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, when Jesus goes into the temple for these religious rites to be performed, this rite of circumcision and the, the, the offering of the turtle doves, these, these laws that are being fulfilled, those things that are happening in that moment are really good news for me and you. you and you might be thinking, I'm still not sure that I'm following you. Why it's such good news for me that these things took place and the life of Jesus, that, that he was circumcised and that a turtle dove or, or pigeons were offered. Well, Jesus does everything to save us. You see, one of the reasons Jesus Christ came to earth was to die for our sins, and that is the right answer to the question, why did Jesus come? One of the reasons Jesus came was to die for our sins. That's the first answer. It's the one that comes to our minds most clearly. But remember when we said that while that is completely true, it is, it's incomplete. It isn't the only reason Jesus came. Yes, Jesus came to die, but he also came to live. He not only came to die for us, Jesus also came to live for us. Jesus came not only to take our place on the cross. Listen, he also came to take our place on earth. We always think that Jesus came to take our place on the cross, and that's absolutely true. But Jesus also came to take our place on earth. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so in Luke chapter 21, we see the first law that Jesus comes and fulfills, the law of circumcising the male offspring. 
And then secondly, the law of a turtle dove or a pigeon being offered as an offering. Jesus is, even as a baby, fulfilling the laws of God, all of them perfectly. And so for 33 years, Jesus checks the boxes on all of the laws of God. Honor your father and mother, Jesus checks. Thou shalt not lie, Jesus checks perfectly. He never lies. He always honors his father and mother. The Ten Commandments and all of the Old Testament commands, Jesus fulfills. He checks the boxes. Where you and I get an X over the box, Jesus comes and he takes and he puts it a check in the box. Jesus kept all of God's laws. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus comes to this earth and he lives with no sin whatsoever. As one pastor writes, because, because the 30 plus years leading up to that first Good Friday is how we are made righteous. See, the 33 years of Jesus' life is how you are made righteous. You are not made righteous by his death on the cross. Imagine with me um, that Joseph comes, and I'm God, and Joseph's Joseph, and I say, you need a trillion dollars to get into heaven. And Joseph comes and says, Jesus paid for my sins on the cross. My negative $1 trillion debt has been taken care of by Jesus on the cross. And I say to him, but I said you have to have a positive $1 trillion to get into heaven. The negative $1 trillion has been taken care of when Jesus died on the cross. Where's your positive $1 trillion? Where's the positive righteousness? When Jesus Christ lives his life perfectly keeping the laws of God, he is standing in your place like he stood in your place on the cross. He is standing in your place on the earth. He is living the Christian life. He's the only one who ever lived the Christian life. And usually at Christmas time, we fast forward from Jesus' birth to his crucifixion on the cross, and we're going to celebrate his crucifixion for us in the Lord's Supper as we're going to celebrate that here in just a few minutes. But let's not forget that for 33 years, Jesus does everything necessary to save us. This pastor, Ryan Welch, goes on to say, Notice that the Father didn't send Christ to the cross as an infant. If we just needed Jesus to die for us, then, then what, why not his offering for salvation as an infant? Why not an eight-day-old Savior of the world? Why do we need a 33-year-old Savior of the world? You'll remember that when Herod found out that Jesus had been born there in Bethlehem, that he sent his soldiers to kill all of the babies two and under during that time. You remember this part of the Christmas story? Why not Jesus? Why not have Jesus be killed then as a, as a baby, as part of what? So, so, I'm sorry, back to this, this quotation. The Father didn't send Christ to the cross as an infant, nor did he send him to earth as a fully formed adult. He sent Christ into human history as an infant, not to die for decades, so that he could both live our righteousness and also die for our sins. 
Jesus does two things. There are two sides to this coin that are important for us as Christians to remember. And often we only remember one side, the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, which is glorious. But let us not forget that he also lived our life for us. He lived a perfectly righteous life for us. Both sides of that coin are necessary. Uh, Theologians and scholars call this the active righteousness of Christ and the passive righteousness, or the active obedience and the passive obedience of Christ. The passive obedience is him suffering and hanging and dying on the cross. He, He is passive in that moment, and yet he is obedient in that moment. And his active obedience, his active righteousness, is him honoring his father and mother. It's him telling the truth. It's him not lusting. It's him not coveting. It's him remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. It's him having no other gods before God. It's him going into the temple and fulfilling all of the Old Testament laws and precepts and commands and words and instructions in a way that no Israelite had ever done. Jesus comes as an infant and grows into adulthood Again, as Pastor Welch says, so that he could both live for our righteousness and also die for our sins. Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This verse makes it clear that it is not by the death of Jesus Christ that you are made righteous. It is by the life of Christ that you are made righteous. It is by his righteousness, his obedience, by one man's obedience to all of God's commands, all of God's laws, all of God's precepts, that many will be made righteous. Jesus not only died for you, he also lived for you. His rescue of you starts the moment he was born. Luke 2, 21 through 24, make it clear that he was keeping God's law for you. Listen, this is really important. This is really important. Jesus came to earth to keep God's law for you. He was already perfect. He didn't need to come to earth to keep God's law for himself. He didn't need to come to earth to prove anything about himself. He didn't need to take on flesh in order to prove something to himself or to the Father. Jesus takes on flesh in order that he might keep God's law as a human for humans. So just as necessary as it was for him to take on humanity, to take on flesh in order to be crucified, to die. Last Sunday, I said he took on a body so that he could be killed. He took on a body so that he could die. He took on a body so that he could live for you, so that he could keep righteousness perfectly And then that righteousness be imputed to you. He was keeping God's law for you. For 33 years, he did what was right for you. He began earning that $1 trillion worth of righteousness for you. So, again, Romans 5.19, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And unfortunately, we think we're saved by grace and then kind of sanctified by our works and 
Friends, you are saved by grace and sanctified by grace. Jesus does everything. Jesus does everything for you. For you. And that sounds too good to be true, but I'm going to beat it into your skulls this morning and every Sunday from here on out that I have opportunity to preach to you. Jesus does everything. It sounds too good to be true. For you. He checks all the boxes. And then he gives that clipboard with all the checked boxes, he gives it to you. And you get to take it before God. And when God looks at you, he says, Joy, it's great to see you. You are beloved. You are loved. You have all the boxes checked. And Joy stands there knowing she didn't check the boxes, but those checked boxes belong to her. Jesus checked the boxes for you. At Christmas time, we often think of kind of two symbols. This helps me. I hope it helps you. I've pastored here long enough. You guys know I'm weird. Um, There's, we think, so picture a symbol. I should have had a whiteboard up here to draw it out. This morning's weird. I felt so thrown off when I was trying to preach the sermon I had written from a sermon I hadn't written. Um, we picture a manger, right? Like that's a, that's a symbol that we have in our heads at Christmas time. And we picture a cross as a symbol of Christianity during Christmas time. And I want to put a symbol in between the manger and the cross. I want you to picture a checked box in between the manger and the cross. And so Jesus comes to earth and he's born. And as he lives for 33 years, he's checking boxes, checking boxes, checking boxes for you. And then he goes to the cross and he dies for you. He checks the boxes. So a third symbol, a checked box. When you're saved, if you're a follower of God, you at no point stand before God in your own righteousness. You don't have any. You stand before him in Christ's righteousness. And I used the word imputation a while back, and I've defined that here before. Imputation is God giving you something. Jesus Christ gives you his righteousness, and it actually belongs to you, and God sees you as it actually being yours. And I can hear some of you thinking, that's too good to be true. I can get I can get my head around Jesus dying on the cross for my sin. I can get my head around him taking my sinfulness. I can't get my head around his righteousness being given to me. But brothers and sisters, one is not harder to comprehend than the other. It's no more amazing and miraculous that Jesus would take your sins and the Father look at him as those sins actually belonging to him and then punishing his son That's no more miraculous, an amazing thing, nothing harder to believe there than to believe that God would then also impute to us the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Some of you may think, "Uh, I know how bad I am and it doesn't make sense and it isn't fair for God to see me as righteous in his son. Friend, it is the only way for you to be saved, to trust in the righteousness of God. Of Jesus Christ. It is just as unbelievable to think that God would look at Christ and actually view him as possessing our sins as it is that God would look at us and see us as possessing Christ's righteousness. 
many of you know that 2 Corinthians 5.21 is my favorite verse of all time. It says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus takes my sin. I get Jesus' righteousness. For those who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus to be their Savior, this wonderful trade happens. This is the good news of Christianity. Jesus does everything for you. He lives the perfect Christian life and then gives it to you and it actually belongs to you. And when God looks at you, he actually sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that saved you when you were saved. It's the only thing that will ever make you acceptable and beloved before him. And it's good news. That's the only thing that makes good news good news. It's not good news if I give you a gift and there's some assembly required. Don't use that illustration. Don't carry it too far, right? Just use it for the point I mean for it to make. Jesus doesn't give you a gift with some assembly required. The gospel is good news. And it's only good news if Jesus does everything for you. Only if he both pays the debt of $1 trillion and credits you with the righteousness of $1 trillion. If he pays for your sins and gets you to zero, you still have to be separated from God forever. But if he pays your debt and gets you to the positive $1 trillion, well, brothers and sisters, that is good news. It's really, really good news. Because if you're like me, you might live a lot of your days feeling like the world is really broken. Do you ever feel like the world is broken? Did you know that it is? Do, do you feel like you're a sinner? Yeah, bad news, or good news, maybe. You are. Do you desperately wish to see all things made new again? Well, they will be. In a few minutes, Angie and the girls are going to come and sing a song about that very topic. As we conclude, let me give you seven things you might be like, holy mackerel, seven? No, six. Six six truths. That's like a whole sermon. Let me give you six things that flow out of this really, really good news. Jay, do you have these in the notes? Did you write these in there? Okay. What are th- what, what, what's the significance of these check marks? Why is it significant that Jesus checked all the boxes for you? These are just six things that I thought of. So this isn't like some comprehensive biblical list. You may be able to add to these. If you're a note taker, write these down. If you're not a note taker, write these down. Number one, God sees me as righteous in Christ. Just like God saw Jesus as having your sin, God sees you as having Christ's righteousness. Now, I'm sure some of you in here still aren't convinced. That's okay. It doesn't change the fact that God sees you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Number two, I'm given a robe of righteousness. For whatever reason, this imagery uh, delights my heart and mind. Isaiah 6, verse 10. 
He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. If you're covered with a robe of righteousness and God looks at you, what does he see? He sees a robe of righteousness. Like a bri- th- this uh, language here in Isaiah is, is uh, uh, a bride and groom language. And the groom gives to his bride this robe of righteousness. And when God looks at you, he sees you as covered in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Number three, God loves me just as much as he loves his son, Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ and you're covered with the righteousness of Christ, then God loves you just as much as he loves his own son, Jesus Christ. There isn't anyone in here that I love as much as I love Jay McMorris or Abraham McMorris or Christiana or Evangeline. Nobody else in here do I love that much. And if you have children, you understand. You're like, yeah, yeah, we get it. God loves you. You broken, weak, sinful, fearful, depressed, uh, unfaithful, uncertain person, Christian. God loves you just as much as he loves his own son. And I'm not just deriving that. John 17, 23, Jesus says, I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. Jesus just says it explicitly, Father, you love them just as much as you love me because I'm in them. Number four, I fear no condemnation. Romans 1.8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That passage goes on to spell out some just incredibly wonderful uh, gospel truths there. But if you're in Christ, you don't fear any condemnation. There's, there is no condemnation coming for you. No condemnation, the old hymn writer wrote. No condemnation now, I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Number five. My position before God is secure. Romans 8, 31 and following, lots of wonderful things here. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And you'll know that passage goes on to talk about who's going to separate us from God. Will death or angels or things present or things to come? No, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now catch this. Your position before God is secure. And, and on a daily basis, here's how you tend to think about your position before God. You're tempted, and most of us not only are tempted, but we just fall, we fail in this area. We're, we're tempted to think that my position before God depends today on my performance today. Did I get up and read my Bible? Did I, did I do the right thing at work? Did I come home and, and was I nice to my wife? And did I interact with my kids in a, in a way that was pleasing to the Lord? And well, God's probably pretty pleased with me today because I, I kind of did the good stuff mostly today. The, the problem is that most days we get up and well, the alarm forgot to go, to go off. And so we get up late and, you know, 
whoever cooks breakfast didn't cook the breakfast you wanted to have, and so you were short with your spouse, right? And then you, the, the dog pukes on the floor in the, in the kitchen before you leave, and you're cussing at the dog. And then you go to work, and someone took your thing at work or took your load or did your thing or didn't, do, didn't check in and made uh, matters worse for you at work, and now you're angry at that person. You're trying not to show it because they know you're a Christian boss, and, but you're really ticked off at them. Right? And you get home, and you watch Netflix instead of interacting with your kids, and then you go to bed, and you and your wife aren't talking because you're upset at each other about something. And, you, and so on that day, you actually think, God's not particularly pleased with me. God's really ticked off at me. I need to keep distance from him until I kind of be good enough to earn my way back into his favor again. That's how we think about our interaction with God. But if, if, if it was never our good works that earned our salvation, it was never our righteousness that impressed him, it was never our righteousness that got us into good favors with him in the first place, then it's not our works that keep us in good favors with him. It's not our performance that is going to get us kicked out of his family or keep us you know, up close to the throne. Now, again, like a father with a child, there are ways in which a loving father may discipline us when we sin, and he will reward us when we do what, what's right. I'm not talking about that kind of loving fatherly interaction, but we often think we've lost our position before God, and we got to kind of earn, not our salvation, but like he's really ticked off at me right now, and I need to be good in order to gain favor with him again. But you were never good enough to earn favor with him in the first place. You'll never be good enough to earn favor with him. It's not your goodness that earns favor with him. It's the righteousness that was imputed to you by Jesus Christ. Your position is secure before God because Jesus lived the life that you were supposed to live and that was given to you at salvation. You are now righteous in God, in him, before God, in him. Number six, and finally, your motivation. My motivation for sanctification is biblical. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. He who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people. Right? That purifying for himself, that's Jesus living a righteous life for you and giving you that righteousness. He purifies for himself a people for his own possession who are now zealous for good works. We, brothers and sisters, live our lives motivated by the righteous life that Jesus lived for you. One author wrote this, Through the gospel, we are to pursue a path of transformation, which includes serving and giving and good works and the practice of spiritual disciplines. And when these pursuits are rooted in gratitude for Christ in the gospel, then God gets the glory and we get the joy. Brothers and sisters, these are just a few of the blessings that flow out of Jesus being circumcised and turtle doves being offered up for him eight days after he was born. That's the significance of what Jesus is doing as an eight-day-old. He's keeping the laws of God perfectly. He is going to hang on the cross for you, but he walked on the earth for you as well. This is the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of Christianity. It's what makes Christianity different from every other religion out there that says you must do this in order for God to be happy with you. Christianity says Jesus did everything for you to make God happy with him. 
I'd ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I know that we're, we're family here this morning. It's just a handful of us. And, man, I'm really thankful um, that we can gather even when it's just a few of us. And my sermon was all messed up and the live stream thing was all messed up. And so God's keeping me humble and showing me that the only thing that pleases him is the righteousness of his son, not my ability to put on a wow shebang Sunday morning. If there's anyone in here who doesn't know Christ, who hasn't come to him and taken his righteousness and given him their sin, then just do that right now, right there in your seat. Confess your sins to him, return from your sin, and trust in his work. I think on, it's more likely that the majority in here are followers of Christ. And we needed to be, you needed to be, I needed to be reminded this morning that Jesus not only hung on the cross for you, but he walked on the earth for you. And you are loved and accepted and delighted in because of his righteousness that he began earning for you as he drew his first breath, even as a babe in the manger. I want to encourage all of us this morning, again, to spend time at the foot of, yes, the cross, but in many respects, even at the foot of the manger, where we see Jesus living, checking boxes for us. Let's remember the manger and the checked box and the cross on which Christ died. Father, we're thankful for your son. We're thankful for the righteous life that he lived on our behalf. We thank you that he is and will make all things new. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. This time we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together, and I'm going to ask uh, Paula and my girls to come, and and they're going to sing a song for us, and the words are going to be on the screen for us. I'll ask that you give careful attention to these words. I think they really express the longings and the cry of our heart as we're aware of the brokenness of the world that we live in. Um, and uh, guests are welcome to celebrate the Lord's table with us. Um, we, we believe it's uh, for all of God's people who are following and walking in fellowship with the Lord. If there's sin between you and the Lord or between you and someone else that's unconfessed, I would ask and God would command that you wait and let the Lord's, uh, these elements pass before you and get right with the Lord before you would take the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask the the men to come uh, who will distribute the elements. I just think I need probably just two or three. I guess, yeah, so yeah, Mark and Gary. Let me pray, and then after I pray, uh, ladies, please begin your song, and we'll distribute the elements. And give, give careful attention to the words um, as they'll be up on the screen. Father, thank you for giving your, uh, your body and your blood for uh, our, our forgiveness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.